Hello and welcome along to another episode of Shattered Lives Reach Ireland's Crime Podcast. I'm joined by Michael O'Toole, who is the Crime and Defence Editor of the Irish Daily Star and the Irish Mirror. And today is our Week in Crime podcast, where we look back over crime stories of the past seven days. I'm Owen Murphy, a news editor for both papers, filling in for Paul Healy, our crime correspondent, who is on leave this week. And this episode is produced by Andre Skintian. Uh, Mick, good morning. Hello, Owen. How are you? Another busy week. Absolutely. There was big, big, big news today in the world of policing with the General Secretary of the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, Antoinette Cunningham. She's announcing her retirement from the Garda and the AGSI, is it? Yes. So Antoinette is the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, but it does what it says in the tin. There are two main representative bodies. One is the GRA, the Garda Representative Association which represents rank and file guardy. Then the next level up, the supervisors, sergeants, inspectors are, are represented by Agsy and Antoinette really was a fearsome advocate for the guards. We were talking uh, earlier, I remember doing a story just last year. She effectively sat in, mounted a, a one person sitting at the offices of GSOC, which is the independent watchdog on policing. They're the uh, organisation that investigates allegations against Gardy. So she really, she sat in and she said, I'm not leaving until you deal with this. And it went on for a couple of hours, but she got her way and she got, I think it was a, 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 a sergeant who had been suspended and she was not leaving that building until the way it works is GSOC don't suspend people, but Garda headquarters suspends people in the foot of uh, GSOC investigations. And she wanted that Garda sergeant unsuspended and she was not leaving until that happened. And she got her way. And yeah. so the, the paperwork was sent up to Jonathan Roberts, who's the assistant commissioner in charge of discipline within the guards. So really, I mean, I, I have the height of respect for Antoinette. She really was a fantastic advocate and a for guards, sergeants and inspectors, I suppose, and a fantastic defender of them. So really, really, really determined. And she will be massively missed, I think, as a representative by uh, her officers. Yeah, she was somewhat unique in that she was a woman holding the role. I know in 2018, she made Irish policing history. She became the first full-time female official in a Garda representative organisation. So up until then, I take it, it was always men at the helm, was it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the nature of policing has changed. There are more and more female members of all ranks. And we obviously, with Neuron Sullivan, we did have a female commissioner and Shauna Coxon and Anne-Marie McMahon are two, two deputy commissioners in the Garda Shikhanar are both female. So there has been progress. But look, I mean, I go to the GRA conferences and the IGC conferences and the Association of Supers. And I suppose, I don't know why, but most of the delegates would be male. And that's just most of the guards are male. I suppose it's it's representative of that way. But yeah, there has been an increase in female membership. And, uh, you know, Antoinette really was top notch. And I presume, look, she's retiring, but... She's got 33 years service. I won't say her age, but 33 years service. So I say she's in her 50s. So I'll say there's an awful lot life of life left in her yet. So some other organisation, I presume, is going to be very lucky to have her working for her. Yeah, she, went, she went out with a bang as well. She was involved in the negotiation of the new public sector pay deal only last week. So she was obviously active until right the end. She's a fierce negotiator. I, I know people who've been in the room with her and she does not take any mess. And just we had that story about GSOC, but she really, really holds the line. And people would tell me to say all the representative bodies 
Garda, GRA, AXI, Supers and Chiefs, they're all in the room. But it's always Antoinette who sat across opposite the commissioner or whatever deputy commissioner it is. So she was a fearsome advocate. So ah, she'll be missed. Yeah. And who's going to take over from her now? I don't know. Look, I mean, it, it, it'll be, uh, I presume there'll be a, a competition. It, it, you know, it's interesting. I know that the GRA had an external uh, hair, the general secretary, an interim general secretary. Now, it's now a, uh, the general secretary is a serving guard who has moved over. So there was always a tradition that it was a serving member who took over, but you never know. There might be somebody in from the outside, but look, I'm sure that there'll be more than enough candidates. Yeah. You had a great story there on the front of the star today about the Dublin riots and Gardaí arresting and quizzing a man over the torching of a squad car during the Dublin riots last November. There was a good headline on the front page as well. Yeah, so uh, I just wanted to talk about, not necessarily the story, but it's just about the headline. So the story, as you say, about a man being held in suspicion of setting uh, a Garda car on fire during the rats on the 23rd of November. Now that man, a man has now been charged, so we won't go down that road, but I just wanted to draw attention to the headline. Readers might be readers here watching or watch viewers on YouTube be able to see it says flame grilled. And it just got me thinking about the headlines that there have been in the star. I think the star, particularly the star, the mirror as well, but the star is really well known for its headlines. And we just to explain to people, you and I very I, I've written one headline in my 24 years, 23 and a half years in the star. You probably haven't written any because it is really there's a specific cohort of people, we call them the backbench, so assistant editors. So really, people like Rohan Smith, John Mitchell, the deputy editor, and Neil Leslie, the, the editor, he writes headlines as well. So there's a small group of people who write these headlines, and I really enjoy getting up in the morning and seeing what headlines they are. Some of them really are quite genius, I have to say. Yeah, they've had some great ones over the years. Are there any particular ones that would stand out for you? Yeah, so I, I would remember ones that were headlines over stories that I did. So I, I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Some of them really you just, you, you know, you have the story and you, and you go to bed at night going, that's going to be a great story. And it's on it's a splash or a front page story. And then it's overshadowed, I suppose, by the headlines. Some really genius ones. I remember a couple of years ago, I did a story about a, a lad who went to a McDonald's uh, drive through mm -hmm. down the country. And for some reason, he decided to get his Mickey out at the... Uh, when he was talking to the teller. So he was done. He was done, whatever it was. So we had the story. Now, it was sent in by a freelancer. We just, we made it a splash by getting the man's photograph. You know, your cell phone, photos make the story. Yeah. And I thought, happy days, great story. But the headline eclipsed it. It was a quarter pounder with sleaze. That, oh, actually won, that actually won an award that year. So people will know that there are annual journalism awards. Um, Paul Healy won the Crime Journalist of the Year uh, last last year. There, there's always a, always a headline of the year and a front page of the of the year. So the Star more often than not wins the headlines. We're very very lucky. So I'm just going to a couple of others that have jumped out, jumped out at me. The, the feud got an awful lot. If you remember when the funeral of David Byrne took place, he was murdered in the Regency. So uh, I've spoken about this before, but Mick O'Neill and I were up above in a plane taking pictures of it. Well, Mick was taking pictures of it. I was, I was just enjoying the ride, I suppose. But we got a great shot of all the mourners getting into the church just off uh, Cork Street there. And I always remember the headline was really, really good. It was mass murder. Then there was another one. Um, last year, there was a story about a drugs mule who had secreted or swallowed kinder, you know, the wee kinder balls yeah, filled with drugs. And the headline was genius, Kinder Supplies. <laughs> and I'll just talk about one more. Do you remember last year there was this story 
about an Irish man, dual Irish Mexican man who was from Killarney, near Killarney, Killorglin in County Kerry. And he was implicated. It was alleged that he was part of that Sinaloa cartel. Do you remember that story? He went down. We got a picture of him and we spliced with it, right? I do, the, yeah. headline, the headline was brilliant. It was El Chapo, the morning to you. <laughs> so I'd say yeah. uh, headlines are, are a gift. And I'm just, I'll just finish in this. I, I've only ever done, I've done two. I won't go into one because it got me in the duty. But one I did uh, was there was a story. I remember I got a story about some criminal investigation and alleged criminality within Erlingus. So it was the splice. And I remember it was John Mitchell uh, when we were in the office. He was sitting there and they sort of sometimes ask about headlines and stuff. And I don't know why it just came to me. Con Air, A-E-R. And I remember John just went, huh. But it was a splice. So they did use it. So I was delighted with that. But anyway, I just wanted to uh, com- or mark the geniuses we have for writing headlines in the store. We're very, very lucky to have them. Yeah. Some of the ones that when the monk was on the run were great, like Jerry the Bunk Hutch and Tash Me If You Can when he was growing a beard and all that. There was some great ones done around the monk when before the monk was found not guilty uh, of the murder of David Byrne. And even when he was extradited from uh, Spain to Ireland on the Casa 235, Aircore Casa 235, I think the headline was Touchdown, as in Touchdown, because we have pictures of him coming in. So, you know, the tabloid writing, headline writing, it is a skill because you only have a very, very small amount of space. It's not like the Irish Times, they can have a two deck, 25 word or 20 word headline. Ours is sometimes one or two words. And it does really have to encapsulate things. So it's, it's a real skill. I've often said, we should bring out a book of our best headlines and front pages. I think it would. I think it would do well. But anyway, definitely. One man who dominated a lot of headlines last week was Ian Bailey, and we spoke a lot about Ian Bailey last week. Of course, the prime suspect for the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. There were some more developments after we spoke last. There was some items seized from his flat. What was the story there, um, Mick? Yeah. So that was. We were actually talking about going down to it. We were going to go down on maybe Saturday or Sunday, trying to get in to see if we could get in or do something about the the neighbours because he was living in, on uh, Barrick Street in Bantry, the centre of Bantry. And he, he actually died of his massive heart attack a few yards from the house. Friday afternoon, the guards declared it a crime scene and sealed it off and uh, effectively searched it and seized a whole rake of items. So the, his car was outside. So they, they, they seized that and took a, a, a rake of items from his car and then... They also went into the house. So they seized dozens, maybe hundreds of different items. We know they had a huge amount of paperwork, documents, notebooks, all that sort of stuff. But they also seized um, computers, phones, we think, and various things. So that's all being examined. Now, the gold would be if someone, somewhere in those writings he had a written confession for murdering Sophie Tosca. Highly unlikely, I'd imagine that. What would you think? I'd, I'd say you know, two chances, slim and none. Mm -hmm. But they still have to do their due process. Now, it was interesting, I was speaking to a source about this because we wanted to see how long this process would be. So there's two aspects to this. All the electronic documents, phones, whatever they have, will be sent to the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau in Dublin. Now, that's a lengthy process. They examine all electronic things like computers and everything. That's going to take quite a while. But all the written documents, all the paperwork, the hard copy, you and I would call them, they have to. They also have to be examined. And if every page has to be examined to see if there's anything to it. Now, just say by any chance there is a confession on it, they have to do their due diligence on that. 
just say if it's there, how do they know it was him? So they'll have to do things like analyze his handwriting. They'll have to do DNA tests. They'll have to do uh, fingerprints. So all that is going to take some time. So the best guidance that was given to me is that it's going to be several months before that whole examination is complete. But I think you're right, Owen. I think we shouldn't really hold our breath for any confession. Yeah, when when it comes to cold cases like these, one of the key factors is to try to, if there has been advances in forensics in the meantime, and that they can glean a DNA profile from both Ian Bailey and a DNA profile from something that was on the scene. Is there any prospect of a breakthrough like that, do you think? Well, they have his DNA. He gave a voluntary blood test like in 1997, and it doesn't change. You, you, you take a profile, so there's no need to do a fresh DNA test for him. So they have it, but what they but they will there there is uh, it's, it's, there is a new test that has been developed in America. We know that uh, she was beaten to death with a rock or a, a bit a big yeah. stone, basically, wasn't it? Now yeah. I remember doing a story a couple of years ago that there was a DNA test done of that, and nothing of evidential value was found. In other words, the there rock, was no, nobody's yeah. DNA, oh, okay. nobody else's DNA. Her Miss Duplante's DNA was on it because obviously it was blood. But there is a new technique. It's something like vacuum packing or something about vacuum where it's much more concentrated and you, and you can basically, the, the, the belief would be you can get analysis from this vacuum technique. So there's an American expert has solved several crimes and he said he's willing to do that. But look, uh, DNA tests and DNA sensitivity does improve, you know, massively every couple of years. So, you know, maybe there might be something, maybe that might be a way out of it. Yeah. And do the Gardaí have all their eggs in the Ian Bailey basket or is there any other suspect out there, do you think? I, I think the, the guards are really focusing on him. That mean, that doesn't mean that they're looking down a blind alley of saying there's nobody else, but I, my belief is they believe he's the killer. They will look at anything else that comes up. We, there have been other people looked at, but really I think the main man is Ian Bailey. I think that's an accepted belief that the guards have their man. Yeah, and of course, there can be no solving of the case if that's the case, because Ian Bailey is deceased. But if there's to be any closure for the family, what closure could could they get if it was Ian Bailey? Yeah, so what can happen is they the, the guards will, we understand the guards will be sending another file to the Director of Public Prosecutions. There were two sent before, as you'll know, and on each occasion the DPP said not enough evidence for a charge. There is a new investigation, there's a cold case review and, and the investigation is ongoing. If there is a DNA or if there is more evidence of a, a circumstantial note, there might be something. So what will happen is the guards will send a file to the DPP and they are, what they do hope will happen is that as in some uh, clerical sex, historical clerical sex abuse cases, the DPP has looked at a file and said, okay, I know this man's dead, but were this man to be alive, looking at the evidence, I believe there's enough evidence to sustain a charge and a conviction. So I would have charged in this case. And that's really what the guards are hoping for in this case, that the DP people say, look, based on all the evidence, based on all the new developments, if Ian Billy were alive today, I would have charged, authorised his charging. Okay. So that, will that will effectively see the case being closed. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see what the uh, Sophie Tuscan Plantier's family would think of that, if they would get some form of closure from that. I, I would just expect they probably would. Well, I, I did speak to Jean-Pierre Gazot, who's the uncle of Sophie, and he spoke about the truth coming out, which, in other words, they want their truth is that Ian Bailey killed Misty Plantier, and they want that truth to come out. So that, you know, they can't get a conviction, but 
if the guards and the DPP did say based on this, I, I think that would give them the closure. That's really what they want. Okay, yeah. I know when we did the podcast last week, a lot of people told me they were amused about the story I told about my mother getting a book of poetry as a Christmas present for me and Bailey back in 2021, I think it was, when I was down in West Cork. Do you have any similar anecdote of your experiences with Ian Bailey? But of course, there's always uh, a, a time for me making an absolute flute of myself that our listeners like listening to. Essentially, uh, I always talk about Mick O'Neill. He is my wingman and Paul Healy's wingman, wingman. So we go together everywhere. Maybe seven or eight years ago, I got a tip. Someone sent me a, a, a newspaper front page, Southern Star, Ian Bailey done for drink driving. And I thought, oh, Jesus, happy days. Here's our splash. So we headed now Dublin to Skull or Turmore. It's four hours, maybe five hours, is it? It's yeah, a good long drive. Yeah, good long. And it's a long, long drive. As my so, grandfather used to say, you're you're halfway there when you get to Cork City. So Exactly. Um, Everybody thinks you're in Cork. So we were driving down. Desk was all excited. I'd be telling you, oh, here's the splice Ian Bailey done for drink driving. Got down, got down to Skull, met Mick. We decided to marshal our forces before we went and doorstepped and what are we going to do? And I took another look at the front page and it was from 10 years earlier. So I had to ring Billy Scanlon in the head of news and say, Billy, we've just driven for eight hours in a round trip and I have made a complete hames of it here. Sorry, but they were grand. It happens. Right, I've lived great. it down. That's a great story altogether. There was another Cork murder in the news this week. Well, it's a suspected murder, I suppose. Mm. At this, this point, decomposed remains found in East Cork on Monday. Who's the victim there? Or who's the suspected victim? Yeah, so the, the, again, you know, the, this pod is coming out on Friday. It's been recorded on Thursday. I'd say by the time the pod comes out, it will be form the body will be formally identified. But I think Gardy are of the belief and are convinced it's a missing man called Kieran Quilligan. He's a 47-year-old from Cork City. He was last seen in Cork on the 1st of September. Now, what is interesting about this, very quickly after the disappearance of Mr Quilligan, the family were very concerned and Gardy were very concerned. And I think within days, Gardy believed that he had been killed. And there has been an intelligence-led operation since then so remains were found in a place called Whitegate, which is in East Cork on Monday. It's about 27 kilometres from Cork City, a good distance. But that wasn't by chance. That was what they call an intelligence-led operation. So the guards had intelligence that the, the body of Mr. Quilligan was there and a cadaver dog, a dog that is specially trained to scent human remains, went down. Cadaver dog made a, an indication, really, I'm told, within a couple of minutes. So very, very quick. And they found the human remains there. So there is DNA analysis going on, going on at the minute that has to go to Dublin for a comparison. It could be today, it could be tomorrow. We're expecting it, but I, I do. There is almost certainty that the, the, the human remains are those of Mr. Quilligan. Okay, and if they are those of Kieran Quilligan, do they know why he was murdered? What's the motive? Yes, they have a very strong indication that um, he did have addiction issues and um, the belief would be that he fell foul of not a massive drugs gang, but a medium, small, in other words, not a Kenahan-sized gang or the, the family that we refer to in Kendalkin, just a small gang that he fell foul of them. So essentially what happened, he was, uh, they, they found three locations that they believe are vital, central to this investigation. One is they believe he was attacked in a property in Cork City. From there, he was taken in a car to a place, Little Island, 
listeners may know Little Island, it's that big roundabout. When you come down into Cork, to the left of that is Little Island. So they believe that he was brought there, further assaulted and actually murdered there. It was really, really bad murder. He suffered dozens of fractures, really, really bad. And then from there, when he was dead, he was taken, put in a car, driven from Little Island to Whitegate in East Cork, and his body was dumped. So it, it's really gruesome. So hopefully the, the, the family will get some news later on today that it or tomorrow that it is him, but it, there will be a murder investigation launched. It's always interesting, these cases where a body is found months later. Of course, in some cases, we have bodies missing for, for 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. In one case, I think the longest missing persons case in Ireland dates back to the 1940s. So it, it, it does take Garthi a long time to find bodies in some cases. I suppose Ireland is so rural and whatever else it can be difficult. Yeah, you know, if you look at uh, Operation Trace, the missing women, there were searches for Fiona Pender, there were searches for Jojo Dollard, there were searches for Deirdre Jacob. And I think in many of those, in several of those cases, guards were really, really hopeful of finding the human remains. Even if you think of, say, Trevor Daly, who went missing, I think it was December 1999 or December 2000, a long, long time. And there was a search for him a couple of years ago uh, near Phoenix Park. around in Shakur area and the guards were absolutely convinced they were going to find him and they didn't and it was a real crushing blow but that investigation is ongoing I think in many cases the guards don't know in other cases they have suspicion but it all depends on people coming forward say for example in the case of Fiona Pender somebody uh, connected to the suspect did come forward and say I, you know, I have information that she is buried there and they were brought to the scene and it was a very 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 big dig but it just fell short yeah, I know in the case of like the likes of Annie McCarrick, who they suspect may, may have been um, may have gone missing in the Dublin Mountains or the Wicklow Mountains, and her she may have been murdered. And like the Dublin Mountains is so vast, isn't it? Like the, we have an awful lot of vast rural land in Ireland where you could bury a body. Yeah, just one thing that that was the uh, sort of the theory for a good long time, but they're now satisfied that she was actually murdered. She was in sort of Sandy Cove, Sandy Mount in the South Central Dublin. Okay. That's where she was living. And that's the guards are, are satisfied now that that's where she was murdered. So there was a, a, a sighting of her up at Johnny Fox's in, in South Dublin. They don't believe that was the case. It was good intention spot, but it, it, they don't believe that was her. Okay. They do believe the answer lies in the Sandy, I think it's Sandy Mount, Sandy Mount area of South Central Dublin. So... I'm not going to say it was a wild goose chase. They they chased down theories, but really the focus is in South Central Dublin now. Okay. Every year, I know you keep a tally of homicides, in other words, murders or cases of manslaughter. Have there been many this month? Yeah, so uh, there have been two. Now, one in North... I, I, there's another journalist, uh, Conor Feehan, in the, in the Irish Independent Media House, and I were the only journalists who do this. We keep a tally because there, every death counts uh, and every death needs to be remembered and every death, as journalists, every death needs to be covered. So we have a, a, a tally, we help each other out. So last year, to give you an example, there were 42 homicides in all Ireland. Okay, In uh, January 2023, there were seven north and south. This year, we've had two, one a man called Kevin Walsh in Talla and one a man called Kevin Conway in Belfast. A man has just been charged in relation to that, so I won't say more on that, but one each. So that's a dramatic reduction on last year. Now, your listeners will know we did, or listeners will know we did speak about Mr. Quilligan. His body was found, we believe it's his body, his body was found on Monday, obviously in January. But that 
technically is a murder from September last year when he went missing. So his death, if it's, if it's confirmed, will be added to last year. And then obviously we'll know that Jason Hennessy died of his injuries connected to this Christmas Eve shooting on the 4th of January this year. So technically his death, it's a double murder. His death is in last year. So there have been two homicides this year and it's down a good amount, as I said, from seven last year. So yeah. hopefully there won't be too many more. Yeah, I suppose we put a lot of focus, obviously, on murders in Ireland. How do we compare internationally? Like, obviously, we're not on the scale of London or any of these major cities mm. that have an awful lot of murders. But it, like, do we have a high number of murders and manslaughters internationally mm. compared to other countries? No. And I always look at the there, there's well, there's an interesting aspect. I always look at Scotland. Never, not never mind England and Wales or Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland has only got a million and a half people. And as I say, I, I'm a 32 county person, so I always do a 32 county aspect to it. But if you look at Scotland, it's got roughly got the same uh, population as us. Okay, so their homicide rate is effectively the same as ours. So it is. It's look. It, some years it could be 50. Uh, some years it could be 30. You know what I mean? But it's. It's not, it's a variable of that. So it, it is quite low. But interestingly, uh, our gun homicides are always higher. So really, uh, in Scotland, you would have effectively one gun homicide a year. Now, hey. in last year in Ireland, there were three, uh, hey. maybe five in the whole, the whole thing. So it's always higher for some reason. And I don't know why, but it's always higher in Ireland than it is in Scotland, our nearest comparator. And are gun, are gun homicides often linked to gangland murders? Is, are gangland often uh, gun? The vast majority of gun murders in Ireland are gangland. So um, say if you, there were maybe seven last year, probably six of them were gangland. Say there were, I think there were three in all of Ireland last year, two of them were gangland. So it's rare that a gun homicide is not gangland, but there are, I mean, there are, if you remember, there was a terrible murder homicide in Cork a couple of years ago, the, the family were killed. And I think the mother and the son were killed. And that was with legally held rifles. That's not gangland, but the vast bulk you're talking 90, 95% of all gun homicides in Ireland are, are gangland. Yeah, I remember being at a crime conference one time and they were talking about, or one expert was talking about how the fact that gangland murders are often the most difficult to solve because they're pre-planned and they're planned in advance and they're done with the most kind of precision. Is that kind of your experience, that they're the ones that the Gardaí find hardest to solve compared to, yes. let's say, domestic killings or whatever? Y yes. So I think last year, the guards and the PSNI probably solved, if not every murder, 99% of them. So really high. I think gangland is about 40%. And I always remember being told that one of the great difficulties, apart from the planning and that stuff, is witnesses. So say if you look at, some witnesses are too frightened to come forward. Say if you look at the Freddie Thompson, you know, when he was done for the murder of Dahi Douglas, that was done chiefly by really great police work, but it was chiefly looking at photographs, looking at CCTV, cell set analysis, mobile phone analysis, and they built up enough picture and there were two guards who identified Freddie Thompson. So in a lot of gangland cases, people are too terrified to come forward. And that's a big issue for the guards and for the PSNI. 
Okay. Just moving on to drugs. I know cocaine is the drug that gets most attention at the moment. I suppose we often hear about cocaine in every town and village in Ireland. I was interested in your stats that cocaine is not actually the biggest drug when it comes to seizures. Is that the case? It never is. I always do. uh, Every year, the Garda annual report comes out and they give uh, a breakdown of, of the forensic science the drugs that are examined and you can use that and look at it because they give weights and values and every year the biggest drug that is seized by Gardaí and so by extrapolation the most popular drug in Ireland is cannabis. I think second is cocaine, maybe heroin, but heroin, cocaine and cannabis are the big three but by a country mile it is always cannabis. So I'm just going to talk through some data that I've got. I mentioned that we do uh, a run in tally on homicides. I've decided this year to do one for drug seizures, all notified drug seizures. And I'll tell you why. Last year, you might remember this, around December, I decided to do a review of all major drug seizures in Ireland, right? Now, last year was a bumper year. And I'll be totally honest, it was a complete pain in the hoop because I had to go back to January and I had to do everyone. Now, the dance, the, the MV Matthew, was we, it was 142 million probably three times that, but I think it was maybe 150 million throughout the year of of drug seizures not connected. And it took me days and days to do it. So I'm doing a run and tally. So for this year, for January, for the month of January, Customs and the Guardi seized 6.97 million worth of drugs in a month. It's quite a lot. And seven. And where, where, where are the drugs seized? Is it down a lane? Somebody down a lane no. doing a drugs deal or in the post or what? No, no, no I'll, I'll tell you exactly. There were 16 separate seizures, okay? 11 of them were of cannabis. Now, of those 11 seizures, seven were intercepted by customs uh, of uh, parcels or posts that had been sent to Ireland. I think it's really interesting that in seven cases, now some of them were 50,000 euro, 10,000 euro, 20, you know, 30,000 euro, not insignificant amounts. So I don't know if this is new because I remember covering the, if you heard of the Westies crime gang from the Naughties, Shane Suggan Coates, I remember doing a story about them that they were sending drugs in by the post. And if you remember, John Gilligan was suspected of sending drugs into Ireland by the, from Spain by the post. But there's obviously been an uptake. Seven of the 11 seizures this year in January alone have been of parcels being sent to Ireland. And the, the press releases say they were sent from Croatia, they were sent from America, they were sent from wherever, and they were sent to addresses here. So obviously, we know that there was a big, huge seizure of cocaine, three and a half million quid at Ross Airport. And that was on a, 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 a lorry or, or whatever. Obviously, that's a big one. But it's just really interesting, the amount of drugs that are being sent into Ireland by post. I just thought it was really, really interesting. Anyway, yeah. so there were there were two seizures of cocaine, two of heroin and 11 of cannabis. So it just goes to show you it's all about cannabis, baby. Yeah, it sounds like a lot, but I'm, it's often said that uh, law enforcement agencies detect or seize about one in every 10 uh, parcels of drugs that come into the country. Is this just the tip of the iceberg, about 10% of what's coming into the country, do you think? Well, it, it's it's a movable feast. Some customs, I think, would say they get 40%. The guards would say probably closer to 10%. But I think they agree that most drugs coming into Ireland, actually gets through the net. Now, last year was a bumper year, but even then, you know, I remember talking to a man called Mick O'Sullivan, who was former head of the Guard of Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, then to be Assistant Commissioner, and then headed off, headed up MAOC, which is the EU's anti-drugs enforcement, anti-drug smuggling organisation. And I always remember him telling me, cocaine is a barometer of the economy. So in the noughties, when everybody was flahulik, 
people started using cocaine and went through the roof. When the recession came in, people didn't have money. They couldn't spend a hundred quid or whatever. Cocaine went down. Now the economy is booming. So cocaine is back up again. Okay. Where does all this cocaine and cannabis originate from? Is it Colombia, South America? Where does it come from? Yeah, it's it's Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. They're the main areas, mostly Colombia. I mean, and we know that the guards have sent a liaison officer to Colombia at the minute. So all cocaine is produced in that sort of South Central America area, mostly Colombia, but Peru and Ecuador and around there. Uh, cocaine, or sorry, cannabis comes from Morocco, around that area. Heroin comes from Afghanistan. And there are various routes. We know that, for example, uh, cocaine goes in, usually goes into West Africa, up through Africa, over to Spain, on the European mainland, then over to Ireland that way. So, but there are, we also know, for example, with the MV Matthew, that they do send drugs from Colombia to the Irish coast. And there are worries because it is quite porous. The Navy, naval service is quite weak, you know, that sort of thing. So, look, there's no doubt drugs are being, Ireland is a transit point for drugs to Britain and Europe. Okay. There's obviously an awful lot of talk at the moment after the Citizens' Assembly was on about whether we should legalise some drugs, decriminalise some drugs. Like, what's the situation at the moment? Like, are they, are, are they going after any of the users or is it just the dealers they're interested in? Uh, no, they are, but I think they have a policy of non-prosecution if it's what they call simple possession. So there's two types of possession, simple possession and possession with intent to supply. They obviously go after people and now this is in relation to cannabis. If you're found with heroin or cocaine or whatever, you're done. But if it's simple possession of cannabis, you don't get prosecuted. But if it's possession with intent to supply, then you're in so much trouble. Okay, yes. And these small-time dealers, I presume there are small-time dealers in these rural towns with 10 or 12 clients. Like, would the Gardaí be bothered with the likes of that or is it just the regional kingpins of dealers they'd be going after? No, no. I mean, what's interesting about this, my, my, my data... So the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau is the big one that goes after the Kinahan gang. But of the, the all the seizures this month, they've been mostly by customs, but also like, you know, local guard units. So, for example, uh, €300,000 worth of heroin on the 27th of January was seized by the Bridewell Guarded Detective Unit. Big seizure. Then there's the Kildare Drugs Unit did one, Bray Drugs Unit, Kerry the Division of Drugs Unit, Finglas, which is very busy, but you know they're very busy with drugs. So there are local drugs unit, Division of Drugs Units around the country. So they do street level, and there's also a push now to go, you go for street level, you go for middle ranking dealers, and then you leave Doc B. It's sort of pound, look after the pennies, and the pounds will look after themselves. So the Doc B go after the big fish, local units go after the medium-sized fish. So they go after all sorts of, and all levels of dealers. Okay, so that's interesting. So it is the small-time dealers and the big dealers and the regional kingpins and whoever else they're going after. Anybody and everybody. They don't yeah. uh, discriminate. They go after crims. Yeah. We mentioned at the start about the Dublin riots. Um, in an overall sense, November, um, the Dublin riots took place that horrendous night. What progress have the Gardaí made in terms of bringing people to... Um, in terms of arresting or charging people? Yeah, so as I say, we had the front page story today on a man's charge. I'll be careful on that. But we can say, and we've done several stories about this, that the guards have up to 200 suspects. Uh, a lot of, we know that an awful lot of the people involved hid their faces. But as I pointed out before, you can hide your face, but the guards have up to 20,000 hours of CCTV footage. You will not have hidden your face. In it, so you may get the bus in 
from Drumcondra and you might get off O'Connell Street. You might have, you wouldn't have hidden your face in, uh, on O'Connell Street or on Drumcondra. So you did the criminality, you hid your face, but you didn't hide your face before and after. So um, I was at the Joint Policing Committee, or I was watching it, which is Dublin City Council's Forum for Senior Guardy and Politicians. So it was Assistant Commissioner Angela Willis, who spoke very well. She's a very good speaker, actually. So she gave a, a breakdown and said that they have 20,000 hours of CCTV footage, that there is a significant operation. There are 36, she said there are 36 Gardaí in Store Street full-time investigating the riots. So that's uh, an SIO, which is a senior investigation officer and detective inspector, uh, four, guard, four sergeants and 31 Gardaí. That's a big operation. So we know that Two people have been arrested in recent days. 34 people have been arrested before that and several have been charged. But my information is they have up to 200 suspects. So there's going to be more people getting knocks. And I think what they're doing is they're sort of triaging. We know, for example, that the Lewis, one of the Lewis trans was set in fire. That alone costs three and a half million quid. They're really focusing on finding the people involved in that. We know that there was egregious looting. We know that Garda cars were set in fire. We know that other places were attacked. The hotel, for example, was attacked. So they're, they're sort of triaging and going after the big suspects first. But make no doubt about this, there are up to 200 people who are in the Garda's sites over this. Yeah, those joint policing committees are always interesting in terms of trying to get to grips with the level of crime going on. Of course, Dublin is the capital city. It's the area with by far the biggest uh, population. You have figures, I know, on firearms and calls to Gardaí and that they, they show very much that Dublin, I presume, is the crime capital of Ireland, is it? Oh, oh no, it definitely is. So as I say, Commissioner Willis gave a breakdown to um, the politicians. JPCs are, I think JPCs are really, really good and a really good sign of local democracy. They hold the, the guards to account and the guards give as good as they get, shall we say. So uh, Commissioner Willis said that last year in the DMR alone, its call centre received 401,000 calls for service. That's 48% of all the calls that Gardaí throughout the country got. They seized 1,035 firearms. I was really shocked by that. I had to double check, but she was she was she was right. Uh, I thought I misheard her. Um, a thousand now that includes you know replica firearms, but a thousand and thirty five firearms taken off the streets is really interesting. They also seized. Remember, I was talking about all the big drug seizures in the DMR, which goes from sort of Bray, north of Bray to Balbriggan and over to New Clondalkin and Newcastle and Rathcoole that area. They seized seventy five million euro worth of drugs last year. So there's a, a team uh, called the Dublin Crime Response Team. They were very, very active. And when I was collating the figures for last year, a lot of press races were about them. They've been very active. So 75, and they all, 75 million. And they also see, they also made 28,000 arrests and initiated over 109,000 uh, prosecutions. And there were 31,500 searches and 87,000 patrols. And finally, they also seized that although they saved 75 million euro worth of drugs, they also seized 8 million euro in cash, which they believe is the process of crime. So very busy year for the guards in Dublin. And was there any sense at the Joint Policing Committee meeting that there's a shortage of Gardaí in Dublin? Was that raised at all at the meeting? It's continuously raised. And, you know, Commissioner Willis, she does hold her, you know, she does stand her ground. She's basically saying the last time there was a, an attestation of guards uh, the Garda College in Templemore is, I don't know the exact number, say it was, I think maybe 230, like 210 of them went to Dublin. 
so the bulk of guards coming out of Templemore have been sent to Dublin and she did say that there's another one coming up in March I think and the vast bulk of them will be going to Dublin as well so she's conscious of the criticism and to be fair to the guards it's clear that they are putting significant resources into what is called the DMR the Dublin Metropolitan Region Okay, just moving on. I saw you had a story there a few days ago about this civilian worker, very sad story, this civilian worker dying in a fall inside Garda headquarters in Dublin last Friday. What happened there? Yeah, he was a terrible story. He was he was working on a mast. He was a man in, in his 70s. So there are three, if anybody's, they, they call it the depot uh, in Phoenix Park. So if anybody goes past it, you'll see there's a mast. There are actually three masts. There's one at the front and two sort of at the rear. And this man was working, and a civilian contractor, and he was doing one uh, at the, over at the left, uh, closer to the army barracks. And unfortunately, he was about 30 feet up and he fell and died. So there are two investigations into that. One is by the guards themselves, and the other is by the Health and Safety Authority, but it's a, it's a, it's a terrible tragedy. Okay, God, terrible, terrible story. We've covered lots of ground there, Mick. Is yes. there anything anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I think that's us. Look, it's you and I are talking about this on, a, on, a, on Thursday. It's very sad. Uh, we've Our colleagues all morning have been working on that terrible crash down, down in Carlo, in which three people were killed. Terrible working on these stories. So just our thoughts are with the families. Absolutely. Horrendous story. And uh, may they rest in peace. And our thoughts are with their families at the moment. Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Thank you very much, Mick. Thank you. We'll do Talk it again. again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers.